and welcome to New Books in Jewish Studies. I'm your host, Davida Goldberg. We have with us today Bruno Shawatz, professor of French at the University of Minnesota, and we'll be talking about his recent book, Is Theory Good for the Jews? Bruno, welcome. Thank you for having me. So let's get right into us into it. Um, can I ask you to tell us about the title of your book, Is Theory Good for the Jews? Is that a genuine question? And does your book offer an answer? Well, you probably have uh, got uh, the irony of the of the title, so it's obviously you know tongue in cheek and provocative. It's also a wink at uh, some uh, you know accusations of Jewish uh, tribalism. But uh, part of uh, asking this question for me was to embrace, in a way, Jewish particularism, but with a grain of salt. Uh, I was reminded recently of a wonderful essay by Levinas, uh, entitled Judaism and Revolution. And in that essay, Levinas uh, says that there exists such a thing as a particularism beyond universalism. It's quite an enigmatic, but it's also a very profound uh, thought about uh, the Jewish uh, factualness or facticity. So maybe there is something in Jewish particularism that um, revolutionary universalism has never been able to grasp. And in a way, it's what uh, my book, uh, uh, to a certain extent, is all about. So, okay. So does that, in, a, in the end, then, do you answer, is theory good for the Jews? Is that an answer? So I don't really answer the question, but uh, I argue throughout the book that uh, the postmodern engagement with the Jews has not been particularly helpful for responding to the new challenges and to the new anti-Semitism. Uh, not uh, uh, at any moment in the book, I, I assume you've seen that, do I uh, uh, imply or insinuate that there is anything anti-Semitic in postmodern theory? Far from it. I actually think that there is extremely uh, useful uh, text, uh, especially by Jean-François Lyotard, that allows us to understand understand anti-Semitism from a metaphysical uh, perspective, which I find extremely useful. Now, remember that Lyotard or Blanchot in particular don't belong to uh, did not belong to the revolutionary left universalism. They were on a certain kind of left, but not to the universal, uni, universalistic type of revolutionary left. So what we see today with uh, people like uh, philosophers like uh, Vatimo uh, or Alain Badiou is, I would argue, and I argue in the book, is a shift of paradigm. We are moving from a sort of uh, idealization of Jewish particularism and the sort of special mission uh, uh, of the Jews. Unfortunately, generally, it's reductive and it reduces the Jews to a sort of exile and diasporism. But we're seeing now a shift to a return to the Jewish problem that the left, since the 19th century, I would argue, has confronted. So what I mean is that Jewish particularism is seen again by the likes of Badiou and Vatimo in, uh, in particular, even in Zotraverso, as an obstacle on the path to progress and revolution. 
However, I would say that you know more recently, Jean-Luc Nancy has offering us, and Jean-Luc Nancy is, as you as you know, uh, an heir, uh, uh, one of the last actually voice uh, that comes from Derrida and from deconstruction, and he has just offered a very intriguing theory of anti-Semitism, and so people who come from the background of deconstruction, thinking of Nancy and thinking also of uh, Jacob Rogozinski, uh, they are even tackling now. Uh, the new forms of anti-Semitism, and especially even the Islamic anti-Semitism, which I think is frankly uh, unprecedented uh, move and is very good news in terms of uh, awareness of these new challenges, uh, uh, even even within the realm uh, uh, of, uh, of so-called postmodern or deconstructive theory. So that's uh, that's how I would answer. There is, of course, as you know, that things are changing now. Uh, you know, I'm I'm talking to you uh, from Israel uh, uh, in a in a very very complicated and very uh, uh, scary uh, uh, circumstance and situation. Uh, and so you, you 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 we see now resurgence of uh, 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 right wing populism and anti semitism, and it's an extremely complicated phenomenon because this movement is also uh, pro Israel and is currently dividing American Jewry. So. Uh, the book, in a way, would have to take into account this new phenomenon, but uh, obviously I wrote it before all of this uh, happened. Right. It's amazing. The book seems to kind of capture a moment in time, and these things are shifting so much. So um, you were very you were concerned in the book to make a distinction, I think, between um, something that was you could maybe broadly say is an old form of anti-Semitism um, uh, where – which is more of the that nationalist, white nationalist, and um, chauvin, uh, you know, national chauvinist uh, hatred of Jews, where Jews become the target of that, versus a new form of anti-Semitism, and yet um, so much changes so quickly, uh, and so v- that's quite interesting that you in, that you are now saying that uh, some of the targets of your book's um, interest and um, critique, the theorists who seem to be ignoring some of the different strands of anti-Semitism, even that is changing. Uh, so you mentioned Nancy. Oh, yes. Yes. But, you know, at the same time, I'd say that anti-Semitism is never really new. The tropes, uh, the tropes are always the same. You, you always have an element of plot, of conspiracy, of Jewish lies, of uh, Jewish invented the Holocaust, and so on and so forth. But one thing uh, that can be said uh, that I would argue is that after the World War II, anti-Semitism could no longer, in certain circles at least, and in Europe in particular, but also in the U.S. could not really be explicit. In fact, uh, Maurice Blanchot, I was reading a text by Maurice Blanchot. It's actually a letter that uh, Blanchot wrote to Emmanuel Levinas in 1968. You know, we are in May 68, so everybody is commemorating May 68 now. So I was uh, uh, reading a, a letter that Blanchot wrote to um, to Levinas in order to explain why he suddenly or brutally, abruptly quit the movement of May 68. And he explained to Levinas that there is now that is in May 68 or in 67, 68. In the 60s, there is now, he said, I quote him, an anti-Semitism without anti-Semites. That's a very bizarre formula, but you know that Blanchot was always very cryptic and enigmatic. Uh, so um, what that means, I think, is that the, the left of the 1960s was uh, uh, being, uh, by, by being ignorant of the meaning 
of Judaism, the meaning of the state of Israel, was were, was becoming some kind of objective ally or accomplice to those who want to destroy Israel and the Jews. That's basically what he said to Levinas in his letter. Now, of course, if you add the Muslim element due to immigration much later, that is since the 19, uh, I would say, 90s or 2000s, uh, then what is new is uh, the old, if you will, Muslim anti-Semitism, which is grafted on the old European anti-Semitism and Christian anti-Judaism. And ahead, you know, above that, the revolutionary left anti-Judaism. So all that makes a sort of explosive cocktail. But, but you see, at the same time, the, the grammar of anti-Semitism remains always pretty much the same. That is conspiracy, uh, invention, lies, plot, uh, uh, powerfulness, all, all omnipotence of the Jews and so on and so forth. So that's interesting. One of the things that you bring forward in your book is um, an event that, you know, as an English language scholar, I didn't know much about, but it seems to have been famous in France, which is the Camus affair. And you seem to argue there there that there was a lot of attention paid to the Camus affair because it's a certain kind of anti-Semitism with anti-Semitism, you might say. So maybe you could just tell us what the Camus affair is and how it played out. So Renaud Camus is uh, or was a very confidential writer until the so-called Affaire Renaud Camus. He wrote for a bunch of aficionados, around, I would say, two or 3,000 readers. <laughs> and uh, it, he started as a sort of avant-garde writer. He was uh, uh, very close to Roland Barthes, actually, and very much on the left. And then he moved uh, gradually toward the right wing. So he, he was accustomed, I think he has stopped a long time ago now, but he was accustomed to write and to publish uh, his diary every year, and one installment of his diary. In, that di- in this diary, he was recording a, pretty much every event or incident of his daily life, which was very tedious, actually, and boring to read, unless you really loved Renaud Camus and was part of this uh, group of aficionados. So in his diary, uh, in, in 2000, he uh, when the, he published uh, an installment of his diary in which he says uh, that um, uh, Jews, and, and here I'm summing up, I'm not quoting, right, that Jews in general have a hard time relating uh, uh, in an experiential, in an organic way to French literature and culture. So you see, this is, I would say, typically the uh, anti-Semite uh, as described by Sartre in uh, his reflection, his uh, anti-Semite and Jew. Uh, that is, uh, it's the re- really old type of the French elitist literary anti-Semitism. Uh, it's obviously not uh, lethal. It's obviously not very not murderous. It's instead, I would say, it's a sort of salon anti-Semitism, a chic anti-Semitism. But it was also, and that's uh, why I uh, took, in a way, I defended Renaud Camus, actually, at the time of the affair Renaud Camus, but also a little bit in my book, without denying his uh, old type of anti-Semitism, of literary anti-Semitism, it was also because I think it was also a distraction. 
in 2000 from what was uh, becoming very serious, what was going on at the time, that is real attacks on real Jews uh, and synagogues during the Second Intifada. Yeah. So are you really saying that you are defending Camus or you're just saying that you, you felt it was a there was the wrong conversation? I thought it was the wrong conversation when um, there was the affair on Camus uh, but about at the same time, Elisabeth Rudinesco, the historian of psychoanalysis, together with Jacques Derrida, published a, a book entitled uh, What About Tomorrow? In French, of course, it's untranslatable into English. It's De Quoi Demain? What of Tomorrow? And uh, in that book, there is a whole chapter about the anti-Semitism that is coming or the anti-Semitism of the future or the f- anti-Semitism to come. And what is very, very strange and disconcerting when I found out when I read that book, it was a very long time ago, it was, what, 16 years ago or so, is that uh, the conversation is entirely uh, limited to this old uh, literary type of anti-Semitism, and they take Renaud Camus as a sort of emblem of the most dangerous and the most lethal type of anti-Semitism. And so I was really shocked to see that and to not see one word about what was going on with uh, real Jews, uh, with synagogues, uh, and and with the anti-Semitism that was uh, going to become gradually uh, more and more uh, violent uh, in France at the time. Mm-hmm. So is there then a distinction that you can make between an old version, even though you've said that, you know, there are certain tropes that are kind of perennial. Is there a, a distinction that's important to make between an old version of anti-Semitism and a new version and a new anti-Semitism? Something that we would want to call a new anti-Semitism? Well, I have uh, uh, the impression that uh, the old anti-Semitism is pretty much uh, uh, fading away, except in certain quarters, in certain circles of the extreme uh, far right uh, in the United States, but also uh, in Europe. But I think that uh, Pierre-André Taguiev, the historian of racism, has really summed up the problem very well back in 2000 when he was writing uh, his um, uh, now uh, classic uh, book um, entitled The New Judeophobia, was translated into English as The New Judeophobia. And he says there is a sort of paradigm shift sorry, uh, between this uh, old type of uh, anti-Semitism uh, where in which uh, Jews were seen as a sort of uh, quote unquote dirty race, and now what we have is Jews being seen as as the dirty racist. And here it's actu- it's actually a quotation from uh, Alain Finkielkraut, who has a very good sense of uh, of formula and a very good rhetorical sense. Uh, and and I think there was something uh, true and something uh, very well observed in this um, uh, assessment. Uh, you know, uh, uh, the, the racist anti-Semitism um, is no longer something that you see very much. Uh, it doesn't mean that it's not still racist, but it's another kind of, of, of phobia, I would say. And it's in a way, it's a return to uh, this very, very old Christian idea that Jews are the enemy of uh, the enemies of mankind. Right, uh, so it makes in, in today's vocabulary, enemy of mankind, of humankind, is is basically racist or, or fascist or colonialist, and so on and so forth. Yeah, well, I, we probably could talk more about that because of 
you know, as we mentioned before, things are changing so quickly. And now there's governments in Poland and Hungary and resurgent lar- larger and larger voices in America um, that really seem to maybe um, be making that form of anti-Semitism newly relevant. But um, I do want to talk more about what you've uh, mentioned that is new to me, um, which is some of the iterations of what we may call the new anti-Semitism that have come up in French letters, such as Stéphane Hessel's uh, manifesto. You call it a manifesto. It's just titled uh, Time for Outrage. And I wonder if you can kind of help us understand what that was and maybe how it kind of compares to Renaud Camus and, and its reception. Sure. First of all, I think it's uh, really crucial to to say that Stéphane Hessel was a hero of the resistance and he had Jewish ancestry. So obviously he cannot and I did not do that in my hope, I did not do that in the book, uh, be suspected of anti-Semitism. However, <laughs> however, I'd say that he affects uh, something which is very problematic, which is a sort of dubious inversion uh, in this very short 16-page manifesto that had an extraordinarily huge impact and sold by the millions in many languages. Uh, um, Stéphane Essel uh, uh, argues that the Palestinians have now become the résistants, you know, using the using the vocabulary of the uh, collaboration and Vichy France and uh, the occupation of, of France by the Nazis. So the Palestinians have become the résistants. The Israelis are the new Nazis, and he also argues in this uh, pamphlet that the Hamas is a movement of revolution against oppression. So I would say that. Those those, those those readings, if you will, are fueling because they are extremely hyperbolic. They are fueling this new anti-Semitism uh, because, indeed, if Israelis are the new Nazis, then why would the Jews uh, uh, complain about the Holocaust since uh, they are capable of doing exactly the same thing? So, uh, you know, I am uh, I'm now in in Israel. I've been in Israel for three months now. And uh, uh, you don't even need to go to uh, American or European campuses to hear uh, this uh, dubious, uh, very problematic analogy uh, between Zionism and National Socialism. In fact, there are Israeli Jews, uh, Heideggerian or post-Heideggerian scholars who uh, recycle this trope, which is a main trope of the new anti-Semitism that had actually been already debunked by uh, Leon Polyakov in the 1960s after the Six-Day War, and also by Raymond Aron and, and, and even by Levinas a very long time ago, even before the Six-Day War. So uh, tell us again, what is that trope? Can you? What is the trope that has been debunked? So what has been debunked is uh, is that the uh, uh, Jews, with the creation of the foundation of Israel, were becoming uh, the oppressor, and therefore by becoming the oppressor, they were to an extent, uh, you know, uh, uh, proving uh, their uh, or demonstrating or embodying their evil nature. Right, and and this this idea that Jews have this evil nature is one step away, of course, from uh, from uh, explaining uh, the persecutions uh, of the war and explaining the, the the thousands of years of of persecutions of the Jews as the uh, again as the enemy uh, of um, of humankind. 
So it's kind of like a post hoc um, justification of the, those thousands of years, because look, you know, we see they, they in fact are the oppressors. The conspiracy has come out of the closet. Is that That's correct. something you would? That's correct. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, but it also, I think, has to do with something that you mentioned in the book, which is um, kind of a, a Christian idea that somehow underlies implicitly a lot of postmodern theory, which is the Paulian idea of uh, the Jew as um, a spirit, as the Jew in spirit versus the Jew in flesh. So, for example, it, Israel is the Jew in flesh, the actual community of Jews, you know, asking for self determination, but the kind of postmodern uh, ethic is a spiritual Jew, the Jew, in, and which is, you know, you say it's um, interestingly related to the old Christian Paulian idea that that uh, Jews are acceptable as a spiritual, but not a real group. So here I, w- I would make uh, I would make a distinction, which I think is very important. It's the distinction between, uh, you know, I don't like to use the word postmodern, although I use it in the book all the time, because I have to simplify since the book is also a sort of intellectual history. But um, uh, I would say that someone like uh, Lyotard or even Blanchot uh, had really, and of course Derrida, had really understood uh, that uh, the problem uh, that Paulinism or the Pauline uh, paradigm or matrix, if you will, uh, poses uh, for for the Jews. Uh, uh, for example, Yotta in the 19, late 80s or very early 90s, he wrote a book, a sort of contra uh, Saint Paul, uh, so to speak, uh, in which uh, you know he says that uh, Saint Paul uh, that, that there is a uh, there is a symbolic and an actual, an actual violence in the in the dialectic of uh, Paulinism of uh, erasing, if you will, or overcoming the Jew in the the Jew the, the Jew in the law, or the Jew of the law, and the the Jew of the flesh, and spiritualizing the Jew and saying the you know the Christian is the is the new Jew or the new Israelite. So I would say that uh, um, uh, thinkers like Blanchot, uh, obviously Levinas, I don't need to to, to mention, uh, but Blanchot and um, and Lyotard have never fallen into that trap into that trap of a sort of neo-Paulinism. However, this is the case. Uh, uh, I, I see it as, as a case uh, that is uh, um, uh, uh, coming up na- uh, more recently with Alain Badiou in particular, Alain Badiou having written a book on St. Paul, a sort of celeb- a strange celebration of St. Paul as the founder of universalism. And at the same time, uh, condemnation of um, of the Jew in the flesh in a book entitled uh, Meanings of the Word uh, Jew, uh, in which he says that basically the sort of, uh, you know, the, the accomplished, uh, the authentic Jew is the Jew here who has given up uh, all kind of particularism. And he goes back to St. Paul for that. So I find it, uh, uh, I, I think it's very important to distinguish between this uh, school of thought, if there is such a thing as, you know, the, the sequence that would go from 1960 to uh, to the 1980s and then what comes after that which is a sort of return to the Pauline. Now of course the case of uh, someone like uh, a thinker like Judith Butler is also a very interesting case uh, that we can that we can broach a little bit later if you'd like. Yeah, I, I would like to get back to Butler but I just want to um, stop for a second at this idea of the universalist versus the particularist because it seems to me like that's been um, a paradox of modern morality from like the beginning of the enlightenment and it and and there's um there are good 
wonderful theories that kind of bring us to a more universalist ethic and others that bring us to a more particular ethic. And the Jew gets kind of caught in the middle and becomes the trope of either side. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, mm. So, yeah. Absolutely. So you have the Jew as the universalist, the cosmopolitan, and, and that doesn't look so great. And then you have the Jew as the foreigner, the tribalist, the, the person who is for themselves, the person who asks the question, is theory good for the Jews? That's the kind of the particularist Jew that also doesn't look so good, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. This is uh, this is what I called, uh, following uh, Zygmunt Bauman, uh, the Jews as the prismatic uh, category. That the Jew is always seen through the prism of a certain ideology, which is, for example, anti-internationalist, and or which is, uh, on the other hand, revolutionary internationalist. And the Jew is always at odds from those two, uh, uh, those two, those two perspectives, if you will. Yeah, one of my more recent interviews was with an author named Chad Allen Goldberg, and he wrote about modernity and the Jews. And he he, he had a great phrase that he borrowed from um, Claude uh, Levi-Strauss, that Jews are just good to think with. Um, and it could be that because we're kind of, you know, Jews are kind of other, but near other, you know, they're, they're not other enough to be, you know, to be a race distinct, especially in today's viewpoint. Um, yeah, I didn't know that phrase by Levi Strauss. Uh, all I can say is that Levi Strauss is uh, is missing <laughs> in my genealogy, and and it's for one reason is that Levi Strauss never, to my knowledge at least, really engaged with uh, with the Jewish uh, as as trope or as figure, which is uh, quite interesting actually. And Bataille, Bataille uh, either. Which is also interesting. There are two, and, and and I would add Foucault as well. So those, yeah, I would say those three thinkers have never really engaged, yeah. uh, uh, in in the same way as you know Blanchot and, uh, of course, Derrida and. Uh, and did you think like that? There, that uh, as much as Jews have been good to think with and 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 in a way that is actually troubling for the Jews, there's something that's a gap when Foucault comes to Paris for his first, you know, years at the, you know, in, in college. And he does not, in 1944 is when he arrives and he never then addresses the, the Holocaust. Um, and it's, and it's an interesting gap. Those three thinkers are, are, are kind of the gap that's glaring in those three thinkers that you mentioned. Um, yeah. So you also, we were just talking about the kind of the ideologies that might kind of underlie some of the um, more recent um, uh, uh, understandings of ethics, um, uh, whether it's, you know, the kind of dialectic or a paradox between universalism and, universalism and particularism. And um, some of those things are the tropes that are underlying Stefan Hessel's time for outrage. Um, and so some of the things that characterize those ethics are the character of the nomad, the transgressor, um, or the the alien to society, which have been put in as a kind of ethical high ground by these earlier figures that you just mentioned, like Bataille. So I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about how those tropes that we see in even in Hessel um, can find genealogy in much earlier figures such as Bataille and, and what that what those what that ethics of the ethics of nomadism I might say um, did in the that earlier context first of all so uh, you know if uh, if I were to sum up uh, Bataille's uh, worldview <laughs> I would say that it's a cosmoeconomic uh, worldview 
In other words, in the universe uh, for Bataille, there is too much energy. <laughs> and it all comes uh, from the sun, right? This energy is an excedent of solar energy, and this uh, excedent is used for play and for waste. So inherently, cosmically and ontologically, human beings uh, must, uh, must use this excess of energy by wasting. And we have uh, art, the birth of art, of culture, the building of pyramids, cathedrals, or you have uh, destruction. Uh, so evil for Bataille is part of a cosmic condition. It's as simple as that. There is uh, no way out of this. And, and uh, Bataille thinks that we should embrace evil. And, you know, it, it, rather than, than do war, we should create art and culture and some, some sort of sacrificial uh, shelters, so to speak. But there will always be destruction. Uh, now, uh, in my book, I argue that the radical social critique, uh, on the other hand, uh, seems to believe in purification, seems to believe that it's possible one day to do away completely with evil and with negativity. So you see how uh, alien to Georges Bataille's uh, worldview it is, right? For radical social critique, violence is always, uh, it's always a response to oppression, and once oppression is overcome and eradicated, uh, well, then negativity, evil, violence will be eradicated. It's almost a Rousseauist type of uh, of uh, a scheme or or, or 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 paradigm, if you will. You know that 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 man is uh, is born uh, is born free and he is uh, an innocent and he is everywhere unchained, right? So you have to to fight this oppression, and then you will have some kind of uh, paradise uh, uh, recovered, right? So that's what that's what I've called. In my book, the moralistic turn. Mm -hmm. Well, what struck me a lot about that is that it seems like um, an ironic and interesting turnaround because they're taking the tropes of theory, um, the amoralistic kind of poetry, the interest and um, uh, elevation of the idea of evil, which for Bataille is is in art and and subversion and transgression is in writing. And they take these same kind of language and structures and ideological structures and um, they, they take what was an amoralism and you argue turn it into a moralism. Yes. I, you know, I used uh, the example as an illustration of an interesting uh, Algerian francophone writer whose name is uh, Salim Bashi, who has written lots of uh, novels. But among those novels, he wrote uh, uh, several what I would call terrorist novels. <laughs> that is, uh, novels in which he, uh, the narrator is a terrorist or in which the narrator puts himself in the, in the mind of a terrorist or the main character, protagonist, theorist, and so on. So uh, I think he does a, a remarkable job at entering into the mind of a theorist, uh, jihadist uh, particularly. Uh, but um, uh, nonetheless, he... Um, he, he, you know, he reads uh, Islamic uh, nihilism and, and violence as a response to oppression and victimization, uh, instead of a case of, uh, of of radical evil. And so he justifies his fascination uh, for the terrorist, which is a fascination that goes back to fascination uh, uh, for evil that you have in Baudelaire, uh, that you have in Bataille, that you already had in in the Marquis de Sade, of course, in the French tradition, uh, or Lautréamont and Poe of the 19th century uh, uh, but he he uses it to uh, to 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 justify 
uh, um, to, to actually to build a sort of social critique, which uh, those names that I mentioned never did. So if you compare with Jean Genet, who is another uh, poet of evil, if you will, uh, in the 1980s... Mm-hmm. Yeah, the English language audience may not know Jean Genet, but he was, so he was Jean, very well known. In Jean Genet world. was a very, a very well-known uh, uh, author who has been discovered by uh, Jean-Paul Sartre, who spent some sometimes uh, in uh, in jails because he was a, a little thief. And uh, at least it's the legend of Jean Genet. Uh, he's the thief. That was in the 1920s, I suppose. So that he, part he, of wrote his the, he wrote in the 1940s, uh, 50s, and he continued. He stopped writing novels. He wrote lots of theater. Uh, but once uh, Sartre had buried him under uh, 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 an 800-page uh, biography, he just couldn't write anymore. <laughs> so Sartre, Sartre, wrote a, Sartre, Sartre wrote an enormous uh, biography uh, Saint Gen- uh, of, of Jean Genet, when, when Genet uh, was, of course, just at the beginning of his literary and novelistic production, which is uh, which is uh, a, a poisoned a gift, if you will. Uh, but uh, so Genet, uh, in the 1980s, his last book, if I am correct, uh, it's a big novel about the Palestinian Revolution, uh, uh, in which uh, Genet uh, embraces the Palestinian cause. But he uh, is very clear that he embraces the Palestinian cause out of love uh, for evil <laughs> and of love for uh, um, uh, uh, a transgression, if you will, a fascination for transgression, for, for all forms of perversion, and, and also out of an anxiety in front of the good. So for Genet, if you will, the Jews uh, had to be uh, killed because they embody the good, because they embody the law, they embody God, and not because they were fantasized as the oppressors of Muslims and uh, and Palestinians. So I think it's very, very uh, important to understand that shift. If you read Salim Bashi, you have elements of Jean Genet in this sort of fascination, you know, for transgression. But what you have is a, a form of social critique uh, that 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 justifies violence uh, 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 out of of a sense of 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 reestablishing uh, the good and reestablishing uh, 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 a certain kind of justice, which is the exact opposite of what Jean Genet was doing actually. So I, I, I see it as a sort of shift, if you will, sort of paradigm shift in the in the French letters. But it's interesting because it, it seems to me like it has to do with the hagiographizing of Genet by actual moral thinkers, right? So, so Genet, in a, it was, you know, writing as a madman in a way, and and needs to be taken literally in that sense that evil is something playful and wonderful to Genet, and yet the other person then takes that as a trope and uses it for an actual moral system. Is that? Yeah, this is a big uh, misreading of Jean Genet. It's a misreading that has been affected uh, by uh, uh, scholars, you know, uh, admirable scholars like Edouard Said, for example, who imagined that Jean Genet was siding with the Palestinians because he identified with with the, with, the, with with the good guy, with the oppressed. But but if you read Genet uh, well and and rigorously, you will see that it's the exact opposite. Uh, and others have made the same uh, type of mistake. 
like fortunately Ivan Jablonka uh, more much more recently has written an extraordinary uh, uh, intellectual and sociological biography of Jean Genet it's entitled The Unavowable Truths of Jean Genet in which he establishes <laughs> lots of uh, in, in, in which he uh, he uh, compensates for lots of uh, false ideas about, uh, about and, and romanticizing or hagiographizing as you call it uh, Jean Genet yeah let's make up that word um, uh, yeah I, I think one of the things that I find really interesting is that like is that nevertheless people are able to take the vocabulary from people like Genet and Bataille and Margaret Dura, who you also mentioned in the book and they take that vocabulary um, and use it for this new moralistic turn but they're still using those words like evil and transgression um, in a in, in a kind of double irony, maybe. Um, so maybe you could tell us a little bit about some of the language and how Bashi, for example, uses it in his novel. Oh, maybe you could tell us actually about his about the publication of Moi, Mohammed Merah, which was a, a big event, I think. Yeah, so I I make a distinction, uh, I hope clear enough in uh, in my book, uh, between, um, how to put it, between a conjunctural or a circumstantial uh, intervention by, uh, by Salim Bashi uh, in the immediate aftermath of the Toulouse uh, massacre of uh, Jewish children by a jihadist in the city of Toulouse. It's uh, uh, 2012, right? And uh, so uh, Salim Bashi was invited by the, by the newspaper Le Monde, the daily Le Monde, to write uh, uh, a piece about this uh, event. It was uh, uh, very in a way, very distasteful because it, uh, he was invited like one day after this, this terrible uh, uh, um, massacre. And so he writes a piece entitled Moi Mohamed Merah, which is I, Mohamed Merah, in which uh, he puts himself in the mind of uh, the terrorist uh, whose name was Mohamed Merah. And he... Uh, you know, throughout this this very short piece, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's in your newspaper, right? So throughout this very short piece of quasi fiction, if you will, quasi fiction, quasi journalistic commentary, quasi op-ed, if you will, he he uh, he says that uh, there is uh, uh, that that basically the the the, the murder of those uh, Jewish children uh, is uh, a retribution. Or a retribution for Palestinian death and a retribution for uh, the discrimination against uh, young Muslims in France and, and, and a way of uh, taking revenge against the French Republic, which alienates uh, uh, and discriminates against uh, the young Muslims. So I found this uh, a, a very disingenuous trick, if you will, and I contrast it with a much, much more intelligent, much more complex and nuanced uh, novels that he writes, which I analyze uh, uh, in depth, uh, uh, in details in, in my book, uh, in which... Uh, it's much more complicated 
to uh, come up with a, a sort of ultimate signified and to an ultimate meaning. But in this very short piece in the newspaper, it is clear that there is a sort of moralistic turn that the transgression, the evil, uh, the nihilism become uh, become something uh, of, of, of a struggle against uh, against a form of, of state oppression and racism and, and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm, right. So the transgressor, so in kind of um, imagining the worldview of the transgressor and making the transgressor the, the main subject, which is something that the older theorists did, here kind of borrowing that structure, he in a sense erases the actual victims, would you agree? Oh, complete, completely, completely, and and the uh, absolutely, and 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 it's it's all the more distasteful that it takes place, you know, really uh, at a sort of, of competition between the novelist and uh, and the news, right? <laughs> so so there there is an, an aspect of haste, an aspect of uh, of, uh, of of speed, which I find very problematic. You have you you need time in order to process. Uh, and you need a novel, you need literature, actually, in order to process uh, events of that uh, 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 negative uh, magnitude. So I take it there are other parts of the kind of fundamental or uh, pervasive ethics of late modernism, post-modernism, post-postmodernism that um, that we can see in a lot of these authors that you mentioned. Um, some of those are a kind of... Um, ethic of nomadism, of marginality. Um, and we find those ideas in, uh, in theorists like Levinas and Blanchot. And then we see them again in many, like, kind of reversed and turned around in many different places. But to begin with, why are these such appealing ideas? Why is it such an appealing thing to make the kind of ethical subject of late post and postmodernism the, the nomad? Well, um, nomadism is... Um is a trope of um, uh, is a trope of freedom. <laughs> it is a trope. Uh, it is a trope also of um, of I would say victimization. And so there is uh, there is this idea that the the, the nomad is the minority uh, is a minority figure. Right, it's a figure who who that be, that belongs to to the oppressed group. So as soon as so, what's interesting is that someone like Jean Genet was into a celebration of exile and nomadism, but then again, for him, like for Gattari and Deleuze, uh, this uh, nomadism was always uh, uh, um, antinomian. And profoundly uh, immoral, in the same way as uh, as uh, Deleuze and Gattari, uh, a concept of deterritorialization and and nomadism. But I see again a shift here uh, with the uh, a new uh, a new trend of uh, engaging with uh, Jewish uh, diasporism. So if you think about, uh, for example, uh, uh, Judith Butler, uh, who has written uh, several years ago this book entitled um, uh, Parting Ways, uh, and it's Jewishness as a critic of Zionism, uh, if you look at her take on uh, diasporism, and Jewish diasporism, uh, then what you have is uh, a nomadism, but which is repatriated 
into moralism, I would put it this way. Uh, you know, diasporism, you have, of course, uh, long, a long time ago, you have Sartre, who in Being and Nothingness uh, equated uh, the diasporic Jew and uh, the consciousness of the floor itself. Uh, diasporism was uh, was already for Sartre a metaphor uh, for emancipation, a metaphor for freedom, emancipation from all, uh, all kinds of determinations. Uh, now you could argue that... Uh, uh, of course, that Levinas' diasporism and, and his nomadism were, uh, to an extent, also moralistic, although, of course, uh, uh, I would not use moralism for Levinas because his ethics is so ra- radical that moralism doesn't, doesn't work. Uh, but Levinas, all, however, always recognized the tragic condition of the human being. He recognized that there is ethics and that there is politics and there is justice and the need, the need to make some choices between different evils, between uh, choices that are always impossible. And this tragic condition that is the history, what I call history itself, is completely rejected by Judith Butler, in my opinion. That's what I argue in my book. And uh, and, and the reason why she does not support uh, the idea of a finite limit Limited, bordered, if you will, uh, Jewish existence in a, in a Jewish state uh, is is precisely because uh, 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 she. Uh, I think she does not recognize this this limited and finite uh, uh, human condition, uh, which which Levinas uh, did actually uh, uh, acknowledge. So I take issue with uh, Butler uh, uh, diasporism, but I take many issue with her misreading, uh, which I find uh, extremely prob- extremely extre- extremely troubling. Her misreading of Levinas and his her distortion of Levinas. Mm-hmm. Like it seems to me that um, it relates a little bit to this idea that Jews are um, acceptable and even admirable as um, the Jew of the spirit. So as long as the Jew stands for the, the the nomad, the alien, the person in exile, and that means having having that perfect autonomy, and and the Jew has to kind of stand for that, and the Jew becomes mainly a trope, and therefore not a person or a community in Butler. Well, there is a form of, yeah, there is a form of dehistoricizing, that's for sure, uh, and uh, also of uh, a, a form of disincarnation, which, uh, again, to go back to uh, um, uh, Jean-François Lyotard, uh, Lyotard, Lyotard Jews, uh, he has been, uh, he has been, uh, he has gotten lots of trouble because he put Jews into quotation marks and so on, or scare quotes, but his Jews were actually very, very uh Incarnate or very embodied, very much in the flesh. He understood uh, this dimension of, of of incarnation of flesh mm-hmm. uh, for Judaism, which is something that uh, uh, I think Judith Butler has a hard time uh, engaging with. It's a very it's a it's a very important part of uh, Jewish uh, uh, facticity or factualness. I think to me it seems to go back to the, the like a, a a fundamental modernist ideal of everybody being um, disincarnated, everybody being um, no longer attached to their commitments, which were actual complicities in power structures. And everybody has to kind of find um, themselves as self-fashioning agents rather than as part of structures, which have been coercive and oppressive. And, And so then the Jew becomes a kind of paradigm of that in Butler. Is that right? Like when she tries to say, um, Tried to kind of build a, 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 a picture of 
the ideal Jew. Well, yes, uh, that is true. It would be, you know, it's not a work that I've done because I don't think I'm competent to do this. But I do think that there would be something interesting to do between uh, her take on, uh, um, let's say, Jewish uh, ontology and um, and gender theory or, or deconstruction of gender or undoing gender. I think it would be very interesting because in both cases you have uh, the Jew who escapes, as you said, uh, sort of natural, social, historic uh, determinations, and and you have uh, a, a subject who uh, is 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 free in in in, uh, in gender performance, uh, is free to to invent himself or herself uh, into um, into uh, another another gender. So uh, you know, I think that it would be very interesting to make this comparison. I've not I've not make it, but it would be. Uh, Yes, certainly. Uh, uh, but you know, the, the reason. Right. Yeah, I don't want to read anything into you that you haven't said. So yeah. Um, but what I do find find interesting is your your point about the tragic condition of humanity, and that that's you know been a basis for ethics for other writers such as Kierkegaard, and and you also read that into literature. It's uh, interesting that you say that Bashi's novels seem to be somewhat successful in the illustration of the tragic condition. Um, and one of the th- other things that you comment about writers such as Bataille and Janet, to go back to that, is that um, that they, to quote you, are awkwardly yet genuinely acknowledge co- the common inhumanity. So it's not just our common humanity that we need to acknowledge and that we talk a lot about, but we also need to acknowledge our common inhumanity. Yes. So you know, if we if we uh, if we deem or if we consider that evil and uh, barbarity. Uh, uh, are inherent part of uh, the human condition, and and I do believe that. Then, then we maybe we'll stop demonizing the other. You know, maybe we'll stop projecting our own inhumanity onto onto the other. Uh, and I would I would even argue I don't want to play the philosophers here, but <laughs> I would be tempted to argue that all the evil of history comes from this projection: the Jew as the inhuman, the non-Christian as the inhuman, the Greek, uh, uh, the barbarian for the Greek is the inhuman. Uh, you know, uh, for the for the communist revolution, the bourgeois must be eradicated, and then humanity will uh, will be free, liberated, and redeemed. So a- any kind of how to put it? Any kind of I'm looking for the word uh, um, soteriology, you know, uh, salvation type of, uh, of of discourse, whether it's uh, religious or, or secular, atheistic, is very dangerous in my opinion. It's always a logic of purification. Uh, it's always a fantasy of establishing a, a sort of uh, unlimited empire of the good, so to speak. And this is why I identify myself uh, as uh, as part of. Um, what uh, philosopher Regis Debray has called the tragic left, uh, and he opposes it to the divine left. Uh, you know, uh, uh, to say, uh, uh, you know, to st- tragic left means that we recognize that uh, there will never be any kind of uh, of end uh, uh, to history, and that we live in this uh, in this tragic, limited, historical, and, and finite uh, condition. So this is this is uh, my position, and I, I really have the impression that uh, thinkers like um, like the, the 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 new the new radicality, if you will, like uh, uh, Judith Butler, Alain Badiou, and and and, and others have uh, have a tendency to 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 fantasize that sort of messianic uh, uh, moment or what I call soteriological uh, uh, moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that kind of helps me to understand something that seems like a mystery to me. Um, 
Bataille's early anti-fascism, and I say that because Bataille is um, kind of a consummate amoralist, and yet in 1933, when many other people were kind of hiding their heads, he was aggressively anti-fascist and publicly anti-fascist, and it seems like a contradiction. But on the other hand, he's pulling in this idea of evil and transgression in a way that is actually that that tragic um, orientation to the world. Okay, we're going to acknowledge it. There is never, there is a, a, by definition for Bataille, there is no faith in a kind of uh, redemption. Uh, you know, there is no, there is no faith in in some sort of moment that will, uh, in which uh, humanity will have been purified for all kind of negativity. And uh, whether we like it or not, we have to admit that Nazism, uh, um, along with uh, communism, uh, were uh, ideologies uh, and politics of purification. You know, uh, uh, the idea of purification is completely alien to Georges Bataille. He didn't believe for one second, you know, that there would be such a, such a moment of, of, of purity or purification. Uh, so I think the uh, Bataille is parting ways and it's being, uh, uh, of course, virulently anti-fascist be, be, for, for this reason in particular. He cannot recognize himself in any kind of discourse, any kind of ideology of, of purity or purification. Yeah, so it's interesting that that, literature came up at a certain time and even Janet were kind of acknowledging and, in, and interested in evil, but then it becomes the same vocabulary turns into a purifying motif. It becomes, so we, then again, we kind of incorporate evil, but then we again, project that evil outwards onto the other in outrage as, you know, Hessel seems to be doing. No, oh, absolutely. This is why I recommend uh, uh, reading uh, uh, um, uh, Robert Antelm. I don't know if you're familiar with uh, with the, the the major testimony by uh, Robert Antelm entitled "The Human Race" in English. It's l'espèce humaine in French, so it's not exactly race in French; it's the species. And in that book, published for the first time in 1947. Uh, Robert, Robert Antelme uh, um, effects something really fascinating. He's just back from Gandersham and Buchenwald and Dachau. He's a survivor. He was not, not a Jewish uh, 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 deportee, but he was a resistant communist. And so he comes back uh, and he writes this book, uh, uh, The Human Species. And he says there is no inherent uh, uh, differentiation, difference. There is no ontological difference between the essay and uh, and the victim of the SS uh, uh, and, and 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 there is a moment where you know when Robert Antem says we have to we have to integrate uh, within us this part of, of evil and it's not by chance that Robert Antem was the husband of Marguerite Duras because they shared the same uh, the same um, how would I put it? The same, uh, not not poetics, but the same, the same philosophy. You know uh, uh, that uh, that 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 this part of evil, this part of the inhuman, has to be uh, integrated within the human. Uh, and this is, uh, you know, I, I always teach actually Robert Antem to my students when I teach a course on uh, post Holocaust uh, France and testimony, because this is this is one of the most uh, uh, important uh, book, not only of testimony. Uh, of history, but also of, uh, of philosophy. Mm -hmm. um, so 
you also so you you also write about how Arendt and others might have been read or misread on the banality of evil, and um, how there's a kind of strange um, turning back around and around about of kind of viewing that extreme as ordinary. The the Nazi is just like us um, versus you know seeing now the ordinary as extreme. Everything that we do in complicity with kind of with the structures and of society might be violence. Um, so uh, I think what is uh, uh, very uh, troubling is the development in the, what I call radical epistemology. Uh, in particular, I'm taking the example of uh, Giorgio Agamben and uh, his uh, tendency to, uh, you know, I call it uh, Nazify, <laughs> to Nazify uh, modernity and liberal democracy. You know, if everything is read through the prism of, of Nazism, in other words, if everything is reduced to the extreme, to the extreme case, then it's very hard to recognize, remember, uh, uh, think, reflect about the singularity that uh, the Nazi period uh, uh, represents in history. And this is one problem that I see in what I call radical epistemology. You see the same, uh, the same epistemological move in uh, all the radical thinkers, right-wing or left-wing. You, know, you see uh, in Carl Schmitt, for example, I think I mentioned Carl Schmitt in my book, you have this uh, idea that to define the political uh, uh, you have to see the extreme case. And the extreme case is a state of emergency, war, and state of exception. And therefore, uh, 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 the, the political and the essence of the political is a distinction between friend and enemy. I think it's a very problematic, very, especially from Karl Schmitt, who was a, who was a legal philosopher and, and Nazi uh, himself. I think it's very problematic to reduce, if you will, uh, uh, the political to, uh, to this distinction, friend and enemy. Uh, so, you know, I see the exact same tendency in, uh, in uh, thinkers like George Ragamben, what I call the sort of reductio uh, 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 to the extreme, to the extreme case, and the normalization of the extreme case. Mm-hmm. So, if I can just take you back to your process, you had mentioned in the early part of your book that this book took you many years and several attempts to write. And I'm wondering why? Why? Why was it such a hard thing to write? Well, uh, at first, it was a you know it was a very personal endeavor. I followed um, with with lots of angst uh, the events of the uh, early millennium in France, in particular. I was already mentioning the attacks on Jews, the attacks on uh, on the synagogues uh, during the Second Intifada. Uh, then, of course, it's very difficult to compete with current events as uh, history uh, unfolds. So there was there, there is a huge challenge of working on the extreme contemporary uh, material. Uh, uh, especially material which is at once uh, literary, cultural, and even uh, pop, popular cultural. Since uh, I examined, uh, as you as you recall, the the case of the stand-up comedian anti-Semite uh, Dieudonné in my book. So I had to I had to take out uh, this book out of my system, as you say in English. And uh, sorry for the cliche, but I had to turn a page uh, in my life. Uh, so finishing this book was a part of this uh, of this urge. So of course it uh, it all began with a sort of personal effect. I would say like any intellectual or artistic or scholarly project. Uh, but uh, hopefully uh, the effect can be can be shared 
in a rational language and uh, and reach out uh, to some readers. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you you write uh, also that um, you regarding Jeffrey Melman, that his spirit of irony and his love-hate relationship with French thought is an ambivalence that you may very well share. Um, so do you still feel ambivalent about French thought? Is there some, what are, what is left in theory that you, that could be a tool that could address the problems that you've identified? Well, there are uh, lots of things which are left in French thought. <laughs> uh, it's not it's far, it's far from dead, although uh, there is a tendency now in French studies to think that uh, the Italian uh, theory is competing with, with the French the French philosophy. Uh, I would disagree with that. Uh, no, there are some tools that we can go back to, uh, to Levinas, of course. There are still uh, uh, tools in uh, Maurice Blanchot, perhaps in, uh, in more marginal text. I was mentioning earlier uh, the way Blanchot had, uh, with an incredible uh, 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 prophetic uh, moment, an incredible lucidity, had denounced the anti- anti-Semitism without anti-Semites. And I think we should meditate on that. There are also uh, tools in post-structuralist contemporary theory. I'm not, not, no need to go back to the 60s and 70s. I'm thinking of Eric Marty, who was a disciple of uh, Roland Barthes and uh, Louis Althusser. I'm, I'm thinking also of Shmuel Trigano, the anthropologist of religion, uh, um, um, and also of the Lacanian linguist uh, Jean-Claude Milner. Uh, I don't think that theory is is dead. Uh, French French thought is not dead, but I warn, however, against uh, a certain hubris and a certain tendency to to generalize, to conceptualize, and to erase the singularities and, and to reduce all the tensions, something that fortunately uh, uh, the uh, literature doesn't do. That's why actually I have uh, uh, focused at certain moments in the book on uh, on some literary texts, uh, such as Salim Bashi, but also on Philip, uh, on, uh, on Philip Roth, uh, for example. Yeah, we didn't have a chance to talk about um, the how literature works, both as um, you know, the Jew as a figure of literature, and as you know, a literature as the way kind of to reach this tragic point of the tragic leftism that you seem to kind of. Well, it all started for me. It all starts with the uh, 1968 again with uh, the book by Patrick Modiano, who won a Nobel Prize recently uh, for the all his work. But he started his uh, literary work in a career in 1968 with a book called La Place de l'Étoile, the Place of the Star. It's the Square of the Star. It's impossible to translate into English. Uh, uh, it's uh, it's a very bizarre uh, carousel or a sort of uh, a puzzle or a sort of kaleidoscope of the impossible of being Jewish uh, after the war uh, and after the foundation of Israel. Uh, I see, you know, in the, uh, in the Philip Roth uh, um, uh, Operation Shylock, something which is much more successful than Patrick Modiano when he was very young and was 20, 20 years old when he wrote that book, uh, but uh, a much more successful attempt at, at showing, uh, at illustrating, at, uh, you know, all the tensions uh, within Jewish, uh, within a, a Jewish being and Jewish identity uh, it's uh, you know it's the the, the trauma of post-war Jewish being uh, uh, assimilation or no assimilation uh, uh, Israel or no Israel uh, repatriation uh, into the diaspora or, or, or staying in Israel uh, so all of those all of, all of those questions are posed uh, w- with an incredible sense of humor and, and irony uh, in 
in uh, Philip Roth. Uh, there is also, you know, protagonists who are absolutely hilarious, like the uh, the, the 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 Zionist uh, uh, protagonist, the diasporist uh, uh, Moshe Pipik, uh, uh, the Holocaust the Holocaust denier, the Arab intellectual, the Jew who is obsessed with anti-Semitism, and all that all all those things. So, uh, in a way, I would say that literature is much superior to philosophy in general. <laughs> to think about to think about uh, about uh, Jewish uh, something as complicated as uh, as nuanced uh, and as and as subtle as uh, as a Jewish uh, um, uh, singularity or, or particularity. Yeah, yeah. I actually haven't read the book, but I got very clearly the sense that you have all these characters who we can relate to with sympathy and empathy, but we can also feel disgusted by, and we can also feel outrage about. Um, and it's all, you know, none of that can really be separated out. Um, and, and that that's what only literature can do, I suppose. I know that in the book, you you say you, even in the book, you say, you're a little bit polemical. And in, in conversation, you've told me, you know, you feel the book has been a little bit polemical. And I wonder what um, reviews and reactions you've heard. And if there's anything in the book that you would want to reconsider, given some of the reactions that you've um, maybe received. No, I don't think I would rewrite things differently. Uh, despite, of course, the, the change and the, the new situation with, uh, with the return of the uh, a populist uh, type, uh, more traditional, if you will, uh, type of anti-Semitism. Um, you know, I, I've been, I've, I've received some reviews. Uh, one, uh, one reviewer called me too liberal in the Jewish review of books, and uh, uh, I was called in another review pretty much uh, an Islamophobe. So, so I don't exactly know where, where, uh, what to make uh, to make out of it. Fortunately, I had also very measured and very fair reviews uh, by uh, by uh, scholars, uh, French scholars uh, such as Jerry Prince and uh, uh, the French uh, essayist Maxime Decoux, and I hope uh, other will other will come. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I read uh, one review by Brett Ashley Kaplan. I think it was in the. H French listserv. And it was interesting because he's very, very respectful. His tone is um, quite classy. And he says, you know, he really respects you as a scholar, but he basically disagrees with everything you say. And one of the things he said was that um, that theory overlaps so much with Jewish thought that it would seem highly counterintuitive to claim that theory is somehow anti-Semitic. So yeah, that's uh, that's a that's that's a misreading of the book. Uh, I don't think at one moment in the book I call theory anti-Semitic. Far from it. So I think uh, Kaplan uh, doesn't have a real mastery of hermeneutic rigor. Uh, I when I accuse a theory such as Vatimo. Um, the Italian uh, Gianni Vattimo, the Italian philosopher of Talmud uh, bashing and conspiracy theory, it is based on textual evidence. There is just no way that it can be denied because I base uh, this accusation, I don't like the word, but you understand uh, what I'm trying to say, on a textual evidence. When I accuse Judith Butler of Levinas bashing, uh, it is also, uh, or, or distortion, it's also based on textual evidence. So, uh, um, um, you know, she, 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 Kaplan cannot have read in my book that Lyotard, Derrida, Blanchot, Traverso are anti-Semitic because I never said that. Uh, no, the real problem is that postmodern philosemitism does not give us the tools to respond to the new challenges of anti-Semitism. This is the, the main central argument of the book, but never, never at any moment an indictment of French thought or postmodern theory. Yes, an indictment 
of distortions and indictment of particularly of, uh, of Geneva Timo for, in fact, real uh, anti-Semitism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think one of the um, real advantages of your book is that you really don't, you really shy away from generalizations. But it's interesting because you're title, for those who don't get the irony of the title, it kind of allows for them to say, I think he might have said that, oh, you know, Shawat certainly answers the question, is theory good for the Jews? And thinks, no, theory is not good for the Jews. Whereas I think it's very clear because of the way that you really respond only very specifically with specific examples and analyses of um, certain authors. And I remind uh... I remind the reader that I'm a theory addict and I remain a theory addict and I continue to like reading conceptual uh, uh, discourse and philosophical uh, discourse. And I mentioned in the beginning of the interview uh, several uh, remarkable efforts uh, from, uh, you know, uh, what we call theorists like Jean-Luc Nancy and uh, uh, Jean-Michel Salansky, the philosopher Jean-Michel Salansky recently wrote an extraordinary book entitled The Jewish Fact or The Fait Juif, which unfortunately doesn't exist in English. So there are lots of uh, new attempts at, uh, you know, uh, at thinking theoretically about this problem. Yeah, um, and, and there's a, a certain humor um, in your title and in certain areas of your book that, you know, that people have to be able to be interested in, uh, in taking up, that there's a sense of humor going on. And it's interesting that at the end of your book, you have this little excursus about um, the role of humor in, in theory and in, in ethics, I guess. You know, I've got the impression that lots of theories that I engage with, I'm not, I'm not talking of uh, Lyotard again, or even Derrida, but lots of uh, theorists, and here I'm thinking in particular perhaps of Traverso, I'm thinking of, uh, of Judith Butler, uh, really lack a sense of humor. Uh, and and I've been uh, trying as much as possible. I don't I don't try because it's natural to me to uh, to, to to laugh, uh, you know, at things. And I engage with Yodone, who is a, a humorist, anti Semitic one, but uh, also a funny one actually. And uh, we have to recognize uh, this uh, this extreme ambiguity again of of uh, of, uh, of a man who who happens to be anti Semitic, but who can also at other moments be extremely funny. <laughs> so so I think I think that uh, Witt's uh, witticism and humor uh, are extremely important. Uh, uh, perhaps it's a Jewish thing, I don't know. Uh, perhaps. We've, we're running out of time, unfortunately, but I had wanted to ask you um, about your next work. I know that you're doing something about Gnosticism, and you even drop hints in this book about Gnosticism, and I wonder if you can, on one leg, tell us how does Gnosticism relate to modern French theory? Is it a continuation? So uh, let me let me tell you a quick story. Several years ago, when I was at the dentist office, uh, I was uh, reading People magazine, which I do when I go to the dentist, and there was an interview with Kathleen Jenner, uh, formerly known as Bruce Jenner, right? So uh, Kathleen Jenner was interviewed about her transition uh, from male to female, and I was struck that by her by her rhetoric, that was the rhetoric of successful quest toward the true, the authentic self. It was a rhetoric of liberation, if you will. And I, I figured out the, this quest is very old. It's ancient, goes back to the ancient Gnostics. So I immediately was uh, was was struck and very intrigued by the rhetoric of gender theory and that of the ancient Gnostic, which is a rhetoric of self-realization, the idea that uh, the true self must be found before creation, 
one is created male or female, but it does not really matter. What matters is to find one's true self. So uh, there is a sort of war against creation, against uh, natural and social determinations that you can find also in existentialism, uh, so early 20th century, as well as in ancient Gnosticism. Hence, uh, you know, my interest in looking at French modern literature and thought from the, uh, on the you know, uh, and it includes also American gender theory and mentioned Judith Butler through this prism of, of the search for escaping the world and creation. So that's the sort of Gnostic reading of the long 20th century, particularly. Uh, so I go back to uh, the interwar period up to the present contemporary with Michel Welbeck and uh, authors such as uh, Volodin, uh, for example. Okay, that's something that we can look forward to um, reading about, I guess, when, when you get that book done. I'll, we'll hopefully have you on again. Thank you so much for being here, Bruno. Davida, thank you very much. Thank you. So we've been talking to Bruno Chauat, professor of French at the University of Minnesota. <laughs>